Go ahead and open your Bibles this morning to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, and we will be looking together at verses 14 to 30 of Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 30. And if you are able, would you please stand with me for the reading of God's holy, inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient word this morning, starting in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says, My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I? Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. This is the word of the Lord this morning. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. In all of creation's history... There hasn't ever been a dinner as consequential, as momentous, and as important as the Passover celebration that was observed and commemorated on this night by Jesus and his disciples. On this night when Jesus was betrayed into the hands of wicked, evil, rebellious religious leaders who had been pining who were desperate to see Jesus put to death. During this meal, we see described for us as we look across all the Gospels, the final hours that Jesus spent with his disciples before his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. All of that would take place in just a few hours from this moment. On this night, during the course of this Passover meal, as Jesus reclined at the table with his disciples, a number of significant events, vital teachings, and pivotal prayers took place. And Matthew, his account of the actual dinner is quite short and to the point. He takes a mere 10 verses to to explain what happened at that dinner. John's account of the same dinner, spans five whole chapters. John tells us that it was at this very dinner that Jesus, knowing his hour had come, 
to depart out of the world and return to the Father, rose from supper, laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist, and poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet, and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around them. That happened at this dinner. It was at this dinner that Jesus set down for the disciples and for us his new command in John 13, 34, to love one another as I have loved you. It was at this dinner that Christ told his disciples clearly, unambiguously, that I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. It was at this dinner that Jesus prays his high priestly prayer of John chapter 17, praying for himself as he set his face to accomplish the task of redemption entrusted to him by his Father in heaven, praying for his disciples that his heavenly Father would maintain them, uphold them, and support them as they brought the gospel to the ends of the earth, and prayed for us who believe today for us who are sitting here, the legacy of the apostolic labor and witness. Matthew's record leaves all of that out because he chooses to focus instead on three things. First, the preparation of the Passover. Second, the identifying or the identification of Judas as the betrayer. And third, the institution of the Lord's Supper. Those are the three things we're going to look at today. Preparation of the dinner, the identification of Judas, and the institution of the supper. So let's spend our time exploring these three episodes. So in Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, he has revealed to us the pact, the backroom deal that had been struck between Judas and, and the chief priests. And now, as this dinner is about to take place, Judas has been seeking an opportunity for about a week now, looking for a way to find, to betray Jesus to them. And the occasion and the moment comes after they had celebrated this dinner. We read in verse 16, Now on the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? So this Passover feast and the days of unleavened bread, they were for Israel a memorial to the days when the Lord, mighty and powerful, delivered his people Israel by outstretched arm from the cruel and severe enslavement they experienced in the land of Egypt. This Passover feast commemorated the night, the night of their liberation the night of their release, the night when the Lord brought upon the nation of Egypt his tenth and final strike. The Lord on this night sent his destroying angel throughout the nation of Egypt to put all the firstborn in Egypt to death. We read it in Exodus 12. From the firstborn of Pharaoh who sat on the throne to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon and all the firstborn of the livestock. It was on this night... Thousands of years earlier, after the Lord had dealt Egypt so devastating and crippling a blow as this, that Pharaoh himself rose up in the night as he heard the howls and the cries and the anguish of all the households around his palace. Because the text tells us there was not, Exodus 12, 30, there was not a house where someone was not dead. So finally... Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go out from my people, both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord. As you have said, take your flocks and your herds and be gone. And so this feast, this Passover feast that they're celebrating here, Jesus and his disciples, hearkens back to, it remembers, it calls to mind the loyal, steadfast love of God for his people Israel. It reminds them of his past works, of his being the almighty God who powerfully acts on behalf of his children and also acts against all of those peoples and forces that seek to tear down and to hurt and to harm his children. The Lord himself 
just before the Passover happened, prescribed for the people of Israel that this day should be kept. We read in Exodus 12, 14 to 17, the Lord saying to the nation through Israel, this day shall be for you a memorial day and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. On the first day you shall remove leaven out of your houses. For anyone eat, if anyone eats what is leavened from the first day to the seventh, that person shall be cut off from Israel. The point of the unleavened bread was to remind Israel of the haste with which they had to leave the nation of Egypt. Pharaoh rose up and booted them out so quickly that their bread had no time to rise. So to eat unleavened bread is a memorial to this fact. He continues, No work shall be done on those days except what everyone needs to eat. That alone may be prepared for you. And you shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your hosts out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a statute forever. And what is it that they were supposed to do on this night? The Lord commanded the people on that first Passover night to go and select lambs, according to Exodus 12, according to your clans, and to kill the Passover lamb. Then take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood that is in the basin, and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. And none of you shall go out the door of the house until morning. For the Lord will pass through to strike the Egyptians, and when he sees the blood on the lintel and the doors, posts, the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over your door and will not allow the destroyer to enter your house to strike you. This is a picture. This is a shadow. This is a preparation for the main event. The main event being the death of Christ, which atones for sin and averts the wrath of God, appeases the wrath of God, and turns that wrath for us into merciful, compassionate, steadfast love for you, his child, provided you believe. And so on this day, as Jesus sits with his disciples, on the first day of unleavened bread, or as he's with his disciples, they come to him and they ask, where are we going to go and eat the Passover meal? They came to him and they asked him in advance because this meal actually took quite a bit of preparation. First, they had to go out and secure for themselves an acceptable lamb. If you read the Old Testament, the lamb always had to be spotless and unblemished. Again, that's a pointer to Christ, the perfect, righteous Lord. That lamb had to be pronounced worthy of the sacrifice by the temple priests. It's not like how it is for us. They couldn't go to Costco. Sometimes I go to Costco and you see that they got the, the full-on pre-slaughtered lamb in the bag. That's the whole thing. It's pretty crazy. I've never actually seen one in a cart. But we, they couldn't go buy a pre-slaughtered lamb. No, they had to go buy a live lamb and ensure that it was slaughtered. They had to do the slaughtering in accord with the command of the Lord. Then after that, they would have to go find, they would have to find or locate a suitable place in Jerusalem to eat that dinner together. And that could also be rather difficult because the city was packed with observant Jews who were also there to observe the Passover as well. So to his disciples, Jesus said this in verse 18, go into the city to a certain man. Some want to make this miraculous. My assumption is that Jesus had this pre-planned already. Mark tells us that Jesus gives a little more description. He says in Mark 14, 13, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. Meaning there will be a man in the city and you will not be able to miss him. Why? Because he'll do, be doing work that's normally reserved for women, carrying the jar of water. So he's going to be easy for you guys to spot. And do you notice that Jesus never gives the man's name? 
We can't be sure why, but throughout history, it's been assumed that no name was given here so that Judas couldn't go and set his plan of betrayal in motion during this most important dinner. So that Judas couldn't lead the religious leaders to the room where Jesus was and have them barge in and ruin the feast. Why? Because Jesus had a lot to do. He had a lot to say. He had a lot to teach. And he had to institute this meal for us to remember. So the opportunity that Judas was seeking would not come until after the meal had concluded, until after Jesus had completed all the sayings that he was going to say. And Jesus continues in verse 18. When you find this man, say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. You see that phrase, my time. That's an important phrase throughout scripture. The set time, the special, unique season that has been appointed for me by my father, it's arrived. It's now. If you read throughout the Gospel of John, you see that this is one of the reasons why Jesus had never been taken into custody or harmed in any way up until this point. Because his time had not yet come. If you go all the way back to John chapter 7, verse 30, you read this. They, meaning the Pharisees in the temple, they were seeking to arrest Jesus, but no one laid a hand on him. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. Again, in John chapter 8, verse 20, says, These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. The words were these. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father as also. And the audience to whom he spoke these words were the, the Pharisees and religious leaders. As he taught in the temple, no one arrested him. Why? John tells us, because his hour had not yet come. And way back, do you remember what Jesus said when his mom came to him and said, we, we've run out of wine. My time has not yet come. Jesus was untouchable until the moment, the season, the prescribed time had arrived. And on this night, as he prayed to his Father in heaven, in John chapter 17, he made it clear as he lifted his eyes to heaven during the high priestly prayer in John chapter 17, verse 1, he said it, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that your Son may glorify you. See, the time had now come for Jesus to bring the work of redemption, the work given to him by his Father, to its conclusion. The time had come for him to finish the work that assures forgiveness and eternal life for all who repent of their sin and believe by grace through faith in his name. And so, because this time is at hand... Jesus will now keep the Passover at this certain man's home with his disciples. And the rule in Israel at the time with regards to Passover and some of the other feasts where Israelites from all over the empire had to travel to Jerusalem was that if you lived in the city, if you were a Jewish person who lived in the city and you had room in your house, you must lend that room free of charge to Jews visiting the city when they ask you if they wish to, so that they could use that space for this holy purpose. And at this certain man's house, according to Mark 14, 15, a large upper room was furnished and ready. That's why when you get to John, you'll see that it's called the upper room discourse. And so, as Matthew records in verse 19, the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover, meaning they completed everything as Jesus instructed them to do, and after preparing the meal, the time had come for them to eat it together. So the first event in our text this morning is the preparation of the Passover meal. And now the second comes in our next section of text, as they are eating that meal together, when Jesus will identify Judas as his betrayer. So after the meal was prepared, we read in verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus reclined at table with the twelve. That's not a typo. That's the original Greek, at table. 
So here, at the beginning of the feast, they're all eating together, and Judas is among them. He's eating, and he's dipping his hand in the dish with Jesus and with the 11 other disciples. And listen, he does so with 30 pieces of silver clinking in his cloak. He eats this meal with the 11 and with the Lord Jesus Christ with the money that he is betraying Jesus, he's been paid to betray Jesus with, still in his jacket. And while Matthew keeps his record of the events of that evening short and succinct and to the point, again, Luke and John describe the scene more fully. Luke tells us that on this night, the disciples began disputing with each other as to which one of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And Jesus replied to them in Luke 22, 7, I'm among you as one who serves. And the Apostle John, again, like we mentioned before, reveals how Jesus displayed to them by illustration and object lesson the truth. Just before they ate, in a clear act of service, humble service, one that he calls upon them to imitate, not the actual foot washing itself, but the idea of humble service, he washes the disciples' feet and tells them that this humility, this openness to serving one another in even the most degrading, seemingly degrading of ways, ought to characterize all the followers of Christ. We are to be committed to one another in humility, not trying to overtake one another and say, I'm greater than you, and I'm greater than you, and maybe you're a little greater than me, but I'm greater than everyone else over there. That's not the kind of conversations that we are to have as believers. We are to... Be humble with each other, to serve one another in love, to, to care for one another, and as the Apostle Paul will say, at times to, preserve, or to think about others as greater than yourself. And Jesus made this all clear to them, saying after the foot washing in John 13, you call me teacher and Lord, and you are, you are right, for so I am. And if I then, your teacher, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, meaning performed a humble act of service for you, then you ought to also wash one another's feet. Humble service for each other. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. And then after this outstanding example of humble service modeled by Jesus, they all reclined at the table to eat the meal. And as Matthew records in verse 21, as they were eating, Jesus makes this announcement. Truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. One of you, said Jesus, one of you here around this table with me, closest to me, one of you is going to betray me. One of you is going to hand me over to the religious leaders who are seeking to destroy me. And Jesus is not caught off guard by this. He knows exactly how it's all going to play out. And yet still, this troubled him and it grieved him. John records it in John 13, 21. He records, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Meaning as he made this announcement, he was disturbed, he was unsettled, he was distressed by what Judas was about to set out and, and do. And the disciples also, when they heard Jesus say this, look at verse 22, they were very sorrowful. Meaning they were very, they were grieved and unsettled and distressed also. And they began to say to Jesus one after another, is it I, is it I, Lord? John tells us that after Jesus said this in John 13, 22, the disciples sat there stunned, looking at one another, uncertain of who it was that he spoke. Do you see that? The disciples sat around the table as Jesus announced that one was going to betray him, and they all wondered who it could be. This is how good Judas had been in concealing and hiding his true intentions and his true motivations. 
This is how skilled Judas was at passing himself off as a real, true, genuine, committed disciple of Jesus Christ. He was so good that after three years of traveling together with the disciples, as Jesus announced the fact that he is about to be betrayed, none of the disciples spoke up and said, well, of course, it has to be Judas. No fingers were pointed at Judas. No accusations were leveled against Judas. In fact, if you look at the text, the very opposite happened. One after another, the disciples said, Is it me? Could it be me? And the question is phrased in such a way that it's expecting, hopefully expecting the negative answer. As in, it's not me, right? Or it couldn't be me, could it? Can you put yourself in this moment around this table on this night? Imagine what this moment must have been like for the disciples around that table as they are struck with the reality of their own weakness. The possibility that they, after everything they have gone through with Jesus, that they could be the one of whom Jesus is speaking. Is it me? I mean, they understood themselves well enough to ask the question, right? Could it be me? Surely not, right? Each and every one of us can kind of understand the disciples here, if we're honest. We can identify with the disciples here, because every single one of us, while we might present ourselves as well put together people to one another, while we might look the part on the outside, while we might be those who walk around looking like they have a completely wonderful life of spiritual devotion that is second to none, and we are overflowing with good sense and practical smarts, every single one of us know, unless you are completely self-deceived, unless you have zero self-awareness, you know your flaws. David made it clear, my sin is always before me. You know your failures. You know your sins. You know the sins that you repeatedly succumb to. You know your weaknesses, you know your faults, and no matter how often the world says, love yourself, take care of yourself, think highly of yourself, you know, you know what you're like. I know what I'm like. We all, to some degree, sense our own wretchedness, and at times, might even ask yourself the question, could Jesus really love someone like me? Is it me, Lord? If we are honest, all of us can say, Jesus knows my thought life. He knows my private life. He knows my failures as a parent, as a spouse, as a friend, as a disciple. He knows that oftentimes I'm more like a miserable spiritual delinquent falling so far short of the holiness he demands than the picture of a disciple described in Scripture. He knows that my words are oftentimes unbecoming of a follower of Jesus. My heart seems to be filled with the very sins that Scripture uses, tells us, characterizes those who will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. Envy, strife, deceit, covetousness, gossip, slander, insolence, haughtiness, pride, arrogance, boasting, and all the rest can leave us asking the same question. Is it me, Lord? Am I one who betrays you? Even the Apostle Paul, right? One of my favorite texts in Scripture because it's so comforting to me. The Apostle Paul, perhaps the most brilliant man not named Jesus ever to live. The man who risked everything, life, limb, and liberty to serve Jesus, to preach him, to proclaim him crucified to the ends of the earth. Even he, when he took stock of himself, 
thought of himself as an absolutely wretched man. Even he, when he took some time to consider his own heart and life, would say this in Romans 7, I don't understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. I have the desire to do what is right, but I don't have the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil that I do not want, that's what I keep doing. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And here's the beautiful answer. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. The best of us, the absolute best of us, are indeed wretched men and wretched women in desperate need of Christ's perfect righteousness, which, hallelujah, Jesus joyfully went to the cross to assure, to guarantee, and to credit to each and every one of you who put your faith and your trust in Him. What a Savior we serve, who gives up his perfect life for such unworthy scoundrels as you and I to save us and to sanctify us and to forgive us for our sin and to grow us in greater conformity to his excellent image. And while the disciples on this night couldn't quite see all of this wonderful news yet, and so they sat stunned and sorrowful over the announcement that one of them, one of their number would be the one to betray Jesus. And as they asked, in turn, if it could be them, is it me, is it me, is it me? Jesus answered in verse 23. He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. Now, this is not saying that at that very moment, Judas had put his hand in the dish and was like, oh, oh, I'm caught. This, didn't, this wasn't outing Judas as the betrayer. In saying these words, Jesus was amplifying the treachery of the deed. In saying these words, Jesus meant, it is indeed one of you. One of you, my closest companions. One of you who is so close to me that he sits at my table and shares bread with me. Mark says it like this, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. At this meal, they'd all been dipping their bread in the dish, but one of them, one who has been pretending to be Christ's friend, pretending to be a disciple, one who has been involved in Jesus' life so intimately that he can comfortably sit at the same table and eat his bread with him will be one who betrays him. The announcement here is, again, designed to heighten and to expose the depths of this betrayal, to expose the enormity of the offense about to be committed by one who eats from the very same dish as Jesus. At this time, in this culture, to eat bread at the table with a teacher or with a rabbi or with a superior was a way of saying to that superior, I am committed to you. There's a bond here. You can be assured of my loyalty and fidelity to you, my leader. And so for Judas to sit here and pretend such loyalty while at the very same time searching for an opportune moment to betray Jesus, reveals him to be a man of treachery. But again, none of this caught Jesus off guard. Jesus knew exactly what Judas would do, and he knew it right from the start. It had long been prophesied what Judas would do. Jesus said it in John 13, 18. He said, I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. 
So the betrayal of Judas fulfills this quotation in Scripture. Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9 is a psalm of David. A man who himself cried out to the Lord after experiencing the pain of such a mutinous betrayal at the hands of a close friend. Ahithophel was his name. Ahithophel was a trusted advisor to David who when David's son Absalom sought to displace David, Ahithophel betrayed David and aligned with his son. And in many ways, the experiences of King David, when you read King David, the first Davidic king, they are a pattern, they are a pointer to the more intense experiences of the greater Davidic king, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so when you read the story of David and Ahithophel, you see this, David has been betrayed by one close to him. And as a result of that betrayal, David is persecuted by the people's. But ultimately, the Lord vindicates David and returns him to the throne. And in the end, Ahithophel hung himself in shame. And Jesus, the greater David, is betrayed also by one close to him. That betrayal leads to the persecution of the peoples. It leads to his being killed by the peoples. And then he is vindicated when his father raises him from the dead and seats him on the throne at his right hand. And Judas, like Ahithophel, ultimately hangs himself in shame. And so Jesus continues... The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. While the deception of Judas, the breach of trust committed by Judas, had been prophesied well before it happened, long before it happened, know this. Judas is no victim of circumstances that are beyond his control. And here we get into a theological conundrum that is just well above our understanding. You see, Judas chose to betray Christ. And at the very same time, the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15.3 that Christ died in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So you see, God is indeed sovereign over every single detail of Christ's atoning death. And the very death that came to pass, the apostles say in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, and subsequently killed by the hands of lawless men. It would come to pass this way because this is what was agreed upon in eternity past by the triune God. Jesus went as written and Judas played his part, a part that was indeed ordained by the Lord and decreed by the Lord, but at the same time freely chosen by Judas. And how those two things work together, if you can figure it out, Please teach me. For this reason, Jesus says in verse 24, it would have been better for Judas if he had not been born. Now, as I read this phrase, I can't help but think, if I'm Judas, if you're Judas, and you're sitting at this meal... What's your first inclination after you hear Jesus say, it would be better for this person if he had not been born? My first inclination is to say, uh, hey, guys, hold on a second. 
and to run out and whip the coins back at the, at the religious leaders and call off the deal, then run back to the dinner and confess everything and repent. Judas had to know that Jesus knew. But Judas didn't do any of that. What did Judas do? He doubled down. You read it in verse 25. Judas, who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And notice the difference, right? All the other disciples called Jesus Lord. And Judas will use a lesser title, Rabbi. What the significance of that is, I couldn't figure it out, but there's obviously something. So Judas leans in, and he asks Jesus this question, again, as the 30 pieces of silver measured out for him are in his cloak. And Jesus answers, you have said so. You see that? You have said so. Or in other words, what you have said is true. It is you, Judas. The phrasing is an old way of stating the affirmative. As John tells it, it was at this moment that Judas got up and left. John 13, 30 to 31, after receiving the morsel of bread, Judas immediately went out and it was night. When Judas had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Meaning, the arrival of the hour has now been set in motion. Which brings us to the third event that took place at this most important dinner. First, we saw the preparation of the Passover meal. Second, we noted the identification of Judas as betrayer. And now, Christ's institution of the Lord's Supper. You've all got one of these, I hope. So if you want, you can start opening the things. As we read in verse 26... Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. Now you know that the Passover meal had been celebrated annually in Israel for over a thousand years, and now the reality, the liberation from enslavement to which the Passover pointed had arrived. And so on this night, Jesus transformed the Passover meal into the Lord's Supper. Deliverance from Egypt was a picture, a pointer to the greater deliverance that God would enact for his people for a people from every nation, from every language, from every tribe, from every tongue, for all who will call out to him for salvation and forgiveness. What Jesus Christ will enact for us is deliverance from the enslavement of sin, deliverance from enslavement to that dreadful, unspeakable, gruesome wage that sin pays out, the wages of death. And death doesn't simply mean the cessation or the, the ceasing or the stopping of your earthly life. It means more than that. It means alienation, estrangement, and detachment from God as Father and brings upon each and every one of us who doesn't believe in Him the condemnation and wrath of the Father. Those are the ultimate wages that sin doles out to your soul. And Jesus came to deal with that. But sin also pays out wages in the here and now as well. We know, as we read, for example, Psalm 32, that David, under the weight of sin, unconfessed sin in his own life, felt the physical ramifications, the physical repercussions of that sin when he said in Psalm 32, when I kept silent my Bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. 
You see, sin is a liar. Sin promises each and every one of us happiness, fulfillment, and wholeness. And every generation believes or holds up some particular sin and says, if we just follow this, if we do this, then all of a sudden I will be happy and fulfilled and authentic and I'll be true to myself and whatever other load of lies it tells you. And every time, every single time, the promises made by sin come back unpaid, unfulfilled, and void. Sin wants to ruin you now and damn your soul later. Sin wants to alienate you from God now and alienate you from God later. And look at what David says next. I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And listen, and you forgave. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. And the rest of the psalm changes from a man who is groaning to a man who is celebrating the goodness of God. See, this is the only solution. The only solution to our greatest and only real problem that of sin's alienating wage is the work of Christ who took upon himself the wrath of God in the place of any and all who believe in his name. And to us who believe here this morning, who've been delivered from the tyranny of and enslavement to sin, Jesus has established for us at this dinner a new memorial one to his body given and his blood shed, one by which we, like Israel of old, remember and thank God for his saving work on our behalf. This Jesus who fulfilled the law for us because we were powerless to do so, this Jesus who lived a perfect life and when we call out to him, gives us, credits us his perfection and takes upon himself our sinfulness. This Jesus, who when we call out to him in faith, declares us righteous and justified in the sight of God. This is the replacement of Passover. Passover is now a relic of the old covenant. It is meaningless among those who still cling to the shadows and refuse to believe in the reality to which it points. To celebrate Passover with no reference to Jesus is a meaningless event now. The shadow has given way to the reality. It all points to and centers on Christ. They were all rehearsals to ensure that we would see and grasp the real deal when he came. And this new symbol, notice, it requires no, or no actual Repeated sacrifices. It requires no actual literal blood in our hands. Why? Because we no longer stand in need of the blood of bulls and goats. Christ's blood shed, meaning his life given, has solved the problem of sin and the guilt that it produces before a holy God for everyone who trusts in him. And so as Judas ran out and looked for the religious leaders, Jesus at the meal took the bread. He took a piece of unleavened bread and after blessing it, after giving thanks for it, after pouring out his grateful affection to his father for the bread and all that it represents, after blessing it, meaning after vesting it as the symbol for us to remember his body given for all of us who believe... Jesus broke it and gave it to the disciples. Now, notice that Judas is not here. Because this meal is not for people who do not believe in his name. This is a meal for those who love 
Christ. This is a meal for those who are in the body of Christ. And when you read the New Testament, you'll see a few things. If you are maintaining bitterness with a fellow brother, you are forbidden from taking part in this memorial. If you aren't a believer, this memorial is not for you. This memorial, this commemoration, this remembrance is for all who love and are loved by the Lord Jesus Christ. For all who know and are known by the Lord Jesus Christ, who love his body and who seek to maintain unity therein. So if you are a believer and your heart is clear of bitterness and anger and hostility towards another believer, then on this night Jesus said, take and eat This is my body. Receive this bread, ingest it, and in so doing, feed on me. Feed on me, the bread of life. Recognize that I and I alone am the one who fills and who satisfies your most profound, your most intense, your most weighty needs. Don't look to or trust in anything or anyone else to address the desires of your heart. Look to me. Jesus said, this is my body, which has caused a lot of confusion. The word here actually means, this is like, this is similar to, this is a participation in my body. Paul will say it, for example, in 1 Corinthians 10. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? And so, Luke, said, in G, Luke, Jesus said this, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Jesus took a cup, verse 27, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So after they had eaten, Jesus took a cup, and he gave thanks to his Father, and gave the cup to the disciples, and told them to drink of it, as it symbolizes my blood of the covenant, or as we read in Luke twenty-two twenty, the blood that establishes the new covenant. A covenant is an arrangement that God makes with humanity where he binds himself to the fulfilling or maintaining of what he's promised. And throughout the Old Testament, It was always blood that sealed or that ratified these covenants. You remember Noah, when he got off the ark, he took some of every clean animal and sacrificed them to the Lord after the Lord covenanted not to flood the earth again. Abraham also sacrificed a number of animals to the Lord after the Lord covenanted with him. And when the Lord gave the law to the people of Israel in Exodus, That covenant was confirmed and ratified when Moses took the blood of the sacrificial offerings and, according to Exodus 24, verse 8, threw it on the people, saying, Behold the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you. The blood that will confirm this new covenant, that will establish this new covenant, the one that we find ourselves under today, is Christ's very own blood, which he declared is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. So this idea of blood poured out speaks to the death of the one whose blood has been shed. And by the death of the Lord Jesus, the new covenant promised by the Lord in the prophets or through the prophets has been launched and set in motion and established. By the death of Christ, the means of salvation and redemption for the many has been purchased. Not just for Jews only, but also along with them, anyone, anywhere who turns to Jesus in faith. For all who do, for everyone who turns to Christ in faith, your sins will be forgiven you. 
They will be pardoned. They will be absolved. They will be canceled. And the guilt and estrangement that your sin has produced, it will be halted and overcome. And you will now be a child of God, a member of the family of God, to whom is promised the gift of eternal life with Him. And so, take and drink in remembrance of the Lord Jesus Christ's death. And when we drink, we do so in hope of his certain return, which is what Jesus concluded with on this night in verse 29. I tell you that I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. This will be the last time Jesus partakes of the wine of this meal until the day he returns to establish his millennial kingdom on earth. And in that kingdom, he will drink it anew with the, the apostles. And so from that day until the day he returns, we are to continue to remember this supper. And as we do we await with eager expectation and in hope and in confidence of his certain return, which is why we can say, return quickly, Lord Jesus. And with that, they finished the meal and they sang a hymn together in verse 30. The hymns that would have been sung during this Passover celebration are Psalms 113 to 118, the psalms of praise to the Lord, and most likely the one sung here at the end of the meal is Psalm 118. And listen to Psalm 118.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good, for His steadfast love endures forever. Now you remember, right? The forces of hell have been, for the entirety of Christ's earthly life, conspiring to keep Jesus from seeing the goodness of his own Father. To keep him from walking the path to the cross. And as Judas is out seeking the religious leaders to bring them to betray Jesus, and as Jesus knows exactly what is about to come, he knows the suffering and the trials and the torment that he is about to endure he sings a hymn of thanksgiving and praise to the Lord. He sings a hymn and says, He is good. And knowing all about to take place flows from the hand of his Father whose steadfast love endures forever. They went out to the Mount of Olives to pray and to wait. And he sang... These words, in Psalm 118, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This is the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. This is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Save us, we pray, O Lord. O Lord, we pray, give us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. We bless you from the house of the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. Jesus sang the song that he was about to fulfill in just a couple of hours, reiterating his trust in his Father. So this morning we saw a Passover meal prepared we saw a betrayer identified and a Passover replaced with the Lord's Supper. Three momentous events, all of which took place at this, the single most important dinner in human history. May God be praised for the salvation he has purchased for us in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, you are good and holy and righteous. We thank you for entrusting to our Lord Jesus Christ the work of redemption and salvation. We thank you that he went 
fulfilling your will, walking the road to the cross, enduring the shame and enduring the scorn for the joy set before him. The joy being the salvation of all who believe in his name. And as those who believe in his name this morning, I pray that we are rejoicing in everything that Christ has accomplished for us. In the house of the righteous, there is much rejoicing. And we thank you. You are wonderful. And we rest in hope and confidence in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.